And I'm Shannon, and this is Workplace Hugs. Workplace Hugs. Hold is on, a pod- Shannon. <laughs> so normally we would do our intro, but I'm actually not going to let you do the intro because this week we're going to do it in a very different way. So normally we unpack a book. Normally we dig in and talk about it in different levels and all those things. I think this was a person, a book that hit me at such a very different place that I kind of want to unpack it in a very different way. And hopefully you'll still get what we want you to get out of this, which is to expand your toolkit. Ooh, I can't wait. I'm excited already. So I'm going to start with a story and a question for you, Shannon. Yeah. And the question for you is... When was the last time you had a really good cry? Oh, Rami. Uh, Fun fact, I have a good cry at least once a week now, as prescribed by my current coach. (laughs) I love it. I love it. No, like literally, I have to do a grief or a rage ritual once a week for 30 minutes. And I listen to a sad playlist. And uh, I'm just permitted to express my emotions. Hashtag this is foster care. Hashtag COVID-19. <laughs> you just emote. Yeah, yeah. What about you? Okay, so I've been reading the Jim Henson biography by Brian J. Jones. And I love reading biographies of people who are geniuses, who change the world. I think there's so much to be gleaned from them. But what I find in most of them is there's not a lot to emulate and there's not a lot that you can take away, right? You read the Steve Jobs um, biography by Walter Isaacson and you go, this guy was just a genius that we will never have the same again. But there's nothing to emulate, right? He was a terrible person. He treated people awful and his genius came from his himself it didn't come from a a collaboration it didn't come from anything else and so i struggle a lot of times in reading these biographies of geniuses because there isn't a lot i can take away this jim henson one hit me in a very different way and he's always someone who i've appreciated i've loved the muppets since i was little one of the first toys we ever gave my son was a beaker muppet that Mm -hmm he really likes and drags around and chews on his nose. And so I knew I knew I I had a connection to Jim Henson in reading this book. I think it took me and helped me understand him so much more. But the thing that killed me was when he dies, they spend so much time talking about all the people around him processing it and all mm. the people coming together for the funeral, right? Like to go through someone's funeral that in depth, I have never had happen in a, uh, in a biography because usually the, the funeral isn't something that you would spend time on because it's yeah. not, it's not a part of that person, but this was so much a part of Jim and so much a part of who he was that I just, I, I listen a lot to books while I'm running and I was running down the street and I was just like sobbing uncontrollably. Oh my gosh. And so I reading wish this it was book raining. Was the last time you yeah. had a really good cry. Yes. That's beautiful. What, what impacted you so much in that moment? I think, so the thing about Jim Henson is he 
he was a beacon of optimism and and enthusiasm and in in the midst of both of those is i think a lot of both love and empathy mm-hmm. and i think because he exuded that for everyone they, there's always stories of jim worked with this producer for these two projects and then when he didn't work with them for the next project he got a really angry letter from that person and he would say well what do you why are you like i loved working with you we had a great experience and like now it's my turn to go work with this other person Mm. but like people would get so upset that he wouldn't work with them again because they just loved being around him and like his energy was so warm i think is the the best way to describe him and so you see throughout his life he is always trying to do as much as he can to help everyone around him and always support everyone and always really just exude this this enthusiasm this optimism and this really warm empathy and so when he dies unexpectedly right spoiler because this happened in 1990 and we haven't had jim henson in 30 years no one could process it right it was like a light had gone out and so it was just it was a lot to like you're reading a Jim Henson biography. You know that this man has died. But to see his impact on those closest to him and even those who never knew him. And, like, it it, it made me feel the same way I think that his partners and collaborators felt and that, like, a little light went out. Mm. 30 years removed from that, that moment happening, which I think is just uh, telling of the the connection i feel to him and i think the impact he's had on us in the larger world and so let me give you a little background on jim henson and then let's start to break him apart and really try to understand the man and the myth yeah because i know very little about him like what do you know about jim henson shannon well rami like if you would have asked me is he alive or dead i wouldn't have known if you like i wouldn't have known i was i did i was not a kid who grew up on the muppets or any sort of familiarity not sesame street like sesame street but i wouldn't that's it like it, it wouldn't have gone beyond that very far whatsoever you think it is easy being green The character that I was most drawn to actually is Miss Piggy. And I don't yeah. know why. Yeah. I don't know why. I just, those are the ones that cracked me up the most. Maybe Kermit was too nice. Was Kermit like the embodiment of Jim Henson? It was. And it's really funny because they talk about um, when he decided to sell it to Disney, there was a lot of back and forth about his use of Kermit after that because he always had such a deep connection to Kermit and like, didn't want to let him go. Mm. So I'm, I'm curious about Jim Henson and what you know about him, but I'm also curious about your connection to him. Like how did your connection to him start? Okay. So I grew up on Sesame street, just like a lot of other people grew up on Sesame street. I think Ernie was my man. I thought he was fun. He was like a goofy person. I think there's, there's Ernie's and there's Bert's and I was an Ernie. He's just like goofy, loves playing in the tub with his rubber ducky. <laughs> Ernie is also a Jim Henson character. Mm. Bert is a Frank Oz. Mm. Kermit is a Jim Henson. 
Miss Piggy is a Frank Oz. They're the foils <laughs> for each other. And I think it was that. I think it was the Muppets. Just like seeing that world of chaos, but coming from like a very positive place. I think his characters were always, they were always kind. Like they're like even yeah. Oscar the Grouch like is grouchy, but there's like a bit of like warmth to him. Yes. Where I think other people, and, and this is something that he always pushed for and always forced into all of the characters that they made was like that kindness. Like the, at the end of the day, like there's always a redeeming factor in all of these. Mm-hmm. And we're not just going to have like a villain to have a villain. And Frank Oz was the opposite. He liked to have just like villains to have villains. So like the, the, the villain in the Muppet movie is not redeemed as much as Jim wanted him to be because Frank fought him on that. But if you look at all of the characters in the Muppets and Sesame Street, there really is that redeeming factor and that kindness and that warmth of them in that, like, they're just kind creatures, even if they're, like, grouchy. Yeah, yeah. So you were turned on to Jim Henson through Sesame Street, like, and the Muppets through Sesame Street. Yes. And you've had like a lifelong love or respect or admiration for him. Yeah. I think it was always, I always really liked the Muppets. I liked the humor. I think the the Fozzie bear jokes are like my dad joke level of humor. I think all of it is my level of humor and it's not, I think it's either really funny to you or you don't think it's funny, but the crazy thing is like the Muppet show existed for five years And at its peak, it was watched by 275 million people every week in the world. Wow. And so it's hard to even fathom, like, how big of a deal this was when it was happening. And so I think for me, it's it's living the post-life of all the Muppets. I think when they rebooted the Muppet movie with Jason Segel in 2011, that for me was such a wonderful time because we got the Muppets the way that we wanted the Muppets, which was the original Muppets, right? Like you got all of them mm-hmm. and you got to experience them in the same humor with the same music and all those things. Right. And I've had a beaker plush for 15 years and the toy that I loved the most as a child was my Ernie, right? I think if there's something about those puppets or Muppets that, that you connect with. And I think for me, like that was a really strong connection of like, getting to embody those things. Yeah, yeah. So what can we learn about or from Jim Henson? Okay, so we hit kind of the high notes, right? Sesame Street, he helped create the characters, the format with the Children's Television Network. The Muppet Show was really built out of a lot of earlier things that he had done with Muppets and his love for the variety style show. But Muppets as I was mentioning before, was the biggest show in the world. And he still said, I want to get to 100, 120 episodes. And that's it. We're just going to be done. So after five years, they just walked away from it, right? And it was the biggest thing in the world. He did Fraggle Rock for uh, five seasons. He made The Dark Crystal, which is a film. Labyrinth, which is a film. I think the most long-lasting is Kermit of all the things. But I think there are three really basic tenets that I want to talk about with him that really help us understand him and, and help you. I think there are things that we can take away from him. And I think these are what they are. So let's start with the first one, which is um, 
trust and encourage. And so he always thought that the best way to collaborate was to, or to, to work was to collaborate and really work through things. So he had the, just the craziest work ethic, which is our second one. And we'll get to here in a little bit, but he would, he would like sketch out what he thought the sketch would be for the day. He would then get into the studio with his partner, which first was who would become his wife, Joan, and then Mm -hmm. someone like Frank Oz and, or Jane, sorry. And they would work it out. They would just work it out. Like they would just work it out. And he, he always had this trust in his collaborators and he would encourage them by, um, they said the thing he did the most was either he would like vocally laugh really hard when something worked, which I think is really encouraging to hear from someone that creative, like when you can get them to laugh, I think that to you is a validation that you can actually succeed and do that thing. The other thing that he would do, which I guess was a way that he always gave positive reinforcement, which he didn't do a lot, but he did it non-verbally a lot of times. But the way he would do it is like cross his arms and then just say, hmm, which I guess was him like validating people. He, he struggled a lot with like giving people pats on the back. He didn't do that because he was so focused on the work, which I think he and everybody else would say like was a downside. That's why when he would laugh or hmm them, like it was, it was a validation, but to push this even further, the, the songwriters that he worked with Paul Williams. So Mm -hmm. Jim Hansen wrote a lot of the music, but Paul Williams wrote all the music for the first Muppet movie. So the rainbow connection is a Paul Williams song. And he had had him on the Muppet show and he loved working with him. And he's like, okay, cool. Like I want to work with you on this movie. So like, let's sit down, let's talk about it. And he was enthusiastic and he's this optimist. And he's like, this is why this is going to be such a good movie. Here's why we need you to do the music for it. And he's like, okay, cool. He's like, here's the kind of music that we need, like for these types of scenes. Yep. And then that was it. He just let him go and work by himself. And so he had a lot of trust in these people that when he would work with them, he would let them kind of just run with it. And Paul Williams always talked about how how great that made him feel to have someone as creative as Jim Henson, like give him full reign to kind of just go and run with it and be able to do that thing. So I think whether it was Paul Williams, he did the same thing with Joe Raposo, who did It Ain't Easy Being Green, the Sesame Street theme song, a lot of the Sesame Street songs, and the music for The Great Muppet Caper. It was the same thing. It was, here's what we want. Now go run with it and then come back. And then I'm sure it's going to be great, right? Like, yeah. I'm sure it's going to be great. And I think having that trust, I think, in your partners and your collaborators, I think it's such a, it's such a, I want to stop using this, but like it, it, it feels to me, it's a very warm feeling when someone just trusts you to do the thing and, and they don't need to like be checking in on you. Yeah. Yeah. So trust and encourage, but in what the examples that you shared, it sounds like he really excelled at the trust and Mm -hmm. his encouragement was small, but maybe just in his trust alone, you felt encouraged. Yeah, and I think it came with his enthusiasm about things that, like, encouraged you and helped you feel like you could succeed in it. Mm. Because they said that he was always, like, the most 
optimistic and the most enthusiastic about everything. There are stories about people who are like, he did uh, a few like shorts called the storyteller where they would write um, like a fable and then do like a, a puppet version of it. And he, he met with this writer, Anthony Minghella and Anthony Miguel was like, I don't want to do this. Like, I can't figure out how to do this. He's like, but I met with Jim and this dude was just so enthusiastic about this thing <laughs> that I said no to him. And then I couldn't get him out of my head. And so then I came back later and said, okay, I'll do it. And I, but I'm only going to do the pilot. So they did the pilot and he's like, and I was done with it. He's like, and then I still couldn't shake this enthusiasm that he had. And so then I went back and then we did a bunch more of them together because I just could not get him out of my head. And so I think it comes from that. It's like that aura that he projects of this optimism, this warmth, this enthusiasm that helps people want to be a part of it. Yes. I think enthusiasm is underrated sometimes mm-hmm. in the workplace. Like I, I feel like I'm thinking about folks that I viewed as really enthusiastic in the workplace. And I think they also got a reputation for being naive or like immature or something. Like if you are, if you are openly excited about something like, Oh, you must, you're one of those or something when really it can be beautiful. It can be such a gift. I think about my mom. My mom has always been a very overly enthusiastic person and how much that propelled me. And my homework, my piano lessons, whatever it was. That's really beautiful. So we're going to hit on where I think it comes from for him in our third piece, but let's talk about the, the work style. So this dude worked nonstop, like nonstop. Like he was always working on two to three projects at a time. He was always working. And the, the thing I think that that hit me at a deeper core with him than any of these other people is like, he loved his kids so much and Sesame street came out of like wanting to make things with them for them. But the idea that like he was the most in demand person, but would still find a way to take his kids with him on all the things, right? There's um, an anecdote about one of his sons really wanted the lead singer of Blondie to be on the Muppet show. And he said, okay, we'll get her on the Muppet show. And so he planned it for the week that he had a break. He like flew him out to London to like make sure that he could be there. Right. And like, they talk about all these trips, like, oh, he had to do press for the dark crystal. And so he took this daughter with him to these countries. He took this daughter with him to these countries. Like he always had his children in his life and always made sure that they felt his presence, right? Like him and his wife, Jane, were never that close after they had all the kids and whether we want to call it infidelity. How many, what, how many kids did he have? Five. Okay. Wow. Yes. So five kids and then not so close with his wife anymore. Something about infidelity. He, um, he and his wife were kind of separate people. They, it just was never going to work for them to be like romantically linked. And so like he would always have, relationships and things and they were always separated so it was never like a a thing for the two of them Hmm. um but it was always his kids were such a focus but he had this crazy crazy work ethic and his son sums it up at the end and says look the way that he was was he was always prepared for everything and 
whether it was a job, whether it was work, whether it was a show, like he was always prepared. But he then was open and willing to have his partners, the client, cause it to fully pivot. So the idea here is be prepared but flexible. And so it's come in, be ready for that thing. Be ready for it to go the way that you think it's going to go. And then be open to the idea that it's not going to go that way and that you're going to have to fully pivot. Or you're going to partially pivot. Or you're going to make a change. Because I think the, the thing that a lot of people struggle with is... Well, if I'm prepared for it to go one way, I'm not going to be ready for it to go another way. And why am I preparing for it to go one way if it's not going to go that way? Yeah, and that is just a lot of crap. Mm -hmm. We can be both. This can be a both and. Yes. I really love this one. You can be both prepared and willing to be flexible. Mm -hmm. And I think that... Oh, I love that. That's what makes... I think that's what makes the successful business people or the successful creatives successful, right? Is like... That preparedness, but then that flexibility. Yeah. Wow, that's kind of just blowing my mind a little bit in this moment. Is there an example in the book or anything like where you think he really emulated that of being prepared, but like totally being open to something going in a different direction? Yeah, they said it would happen a lot on the Muppet Show. Like they would they would prepare like a few sketches, and then the person would come in because they'd have a rotating guest every week. And that person would either like not connect in the right way with those sketches or would cause them to pivot or would, would come in and say, I want to, I'm, I'm not a singer, but I want to do just singing sketches the whole time. And they go, okay, well we didn't prepare for any singing, but let's figure out how to do it. Right. (laughs) And it was, I think because he was an optimist and enthusiastic, like anytime people would come to him with a, a pivot, I think he was willing to run in that way. But he just had this like immense work ethic. Like people, his brother died when he was young, right? When he was in his early twenties, his brother had died. And Mm -hmm. people always said that he was always trying to do as much as possible because he almost had a premonition that he was going to die young. Mm. And so he just had to get this output out of him. Well, but he sounds like one of the most healthy hard workers I've ever heard of at the same time from how you're describing him of like his kids were involved in his life. Like he found a way to integrate and incorporate his life into his work while his work was huge and took a lot of time. Yes. I think the part that towards the end of his life, he was getting ready to sell off everything to Disney because he was done with the business side. I think the business side was what was actually starting to like, I'm going to say kill him, but it didn't kill him. But like, that's what was like draining his energy was doing the business part. Cause he was running the business, trying to figure out financing and then do the creative parts. And so that's why he wanted to sell it off to Disney and then not have to focus about the business side of things. And so I think, yes, he found healthy ways to do things. I think he was still like so thin all the time, mm-hmm. but it was nice to see that he like focused on, the moment that he was in the people that he was with yes. and like made space for his children in, in, in that very narrow amount of time that he had, even if they were just tangentially like going with him places. Yeah. So I want to go back to the, so the core of the second principle is prepared, but flexible. Yes. I love that. Okay. So Shannon, here's the last one. This is the one that hits me the hardest. This one is going to make you think of your mom. 
this is the one that I wrote down on a post-it and like want to keep myself focused on. So in the epilogue, they talk about all the things, his legacy, all these things. And everybody was like, yeah, he was great. He was optimistic. He was this enthusiast. He was always enthusiastic. Um, and Frank Oz, who may have been his greatest collaborator, said, I, I get all those things. I get that people want to say he was a creative genius. The thing that he was, was a great appreciator. Hmm. He loved every detail. He loved the people. He loved everything. And I think his appreciation of every detail of the people, of, of the work, of the humor, of the, the design of things is what made him so optimistic and enthusiastic. And I think because hmm. of that... That, that admiration, that, that appreciation. I think when you, when you have that for things, I think it, it lets you appreciate the work that someone put into that. When you have it for people, I think it, it exudes itself through empathy, through love, through compassion. And I think if you, if you are always appreciating, I don't think you have any other mindset but to be optimistic. Yeah. And and be enthusiastic. Yeah. That actually reminds me more of my dad. Uh, I, I think I've shared this with you before. I've literally never heard my dad complain. Mm -hmm. I've been alive for 34 years, and I cannot think of a single time I've heard him complain. And I'll ask him about it from time to time. I just asked him about it this past weekend when I saw him. Wondering, like, is it just that he forces it? You know, like, mm -hmm. he's just... For whatever reason, he had a pretty rough childhood. Like, it's just not in him. He's forced it out of himself. Or is it just, like, that he is this present and savoring in every moment? And it's totally the latter. Yeah. <laughs> like, I asked him and he said, there's just nothing to complain about. Like, he was like, what What? What? what could there possibly be to complain mm -hmm. about? Like, look at my life. Look at the beauty that I, like, I get to farm every day. I have this beautiful family, whatever. And I thought wow, like, yeah, how do you get to that space where you can Jim Henson it or John Shotler it a little bit and find so much to savor in every little detail of a design, of a sketch, of a song, whatever, that there's just nothing to complain about. And I think it, when it, to your, to your dad and to Jim's existence, I think when it comes from a genuine place, when it comes from appreciation, I think it's hard not to believe what they're telling you. And it's hard not to get wrapped up in that optimism and that enthusiasm. And I think it helps people like get on board with things that, that may not be exciting or may seem impossible. Right. But I think when it comes yeah. from that appreciation, it comes off genuinely. And I think it, 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 it's that aura, it's that energy that people want to, to, to soak in. Yeah. And maybe where I'm feeling like a little disconnected and you can clarify it for me is this whole thing about like, oh, well, he appreciated, but like he didn't say it. If we go back to the thing, like, yeah. I, don't, I don't quite get that. I'm like, well, then how did that come off? And, and I know you said like, well, it was in the little hmms or whatever, but I'm like, well, and I guess that is kind of my dad too. Like my dad is not a very exuberant person. But you can just see it in his being, mm -hmm. you know, that he's savoring something or appreciating something, even if he's not really vocal about it. And that's what they always said about okay. Jim is like, you wouldn't, 
like he would laugh at a sketch and like you knew that it worked and it was great but he wasn't going to go and say like oh that was great work like everybody like let's 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 like pat ourselves on the back like that wasn't yeah. he wasn't and i i think because he would have taken away from the genuineness i think of his appreciation for him to take a step back and then say like good job on that thing yeah because i think yeah. his genuine way of showing appreciation was to laugh uh-huh and was to be warm and hug people and like show them that one-on-one connection and i th- yes and i think that's how he exuded it and and maybe it's similar with your father but i think that's the thing for me with this whole book with Jim Henson as a person is like, how do we, how do we become the great appreciator? How do we let the details, how do we let the people, how do we let all of those things energize us and give us that, that genuine optimism and genuine enthusiasm to appreciate the world that we have? Yeah. It's what's coming to me in this moment is that, appreciate we think of appreciation or i think of appreciation initially as like external like really you know like with words with what whatever and what i'm hearing in this is appreciation like through your presence you know Mm -hmm. how can you show someone you appreciate them by giving your presence and and the energy that you're communicating in your presence a little bit ago back to our episode on time shifting of like how your presence can give so much of a certain feeling and it sounds like he really had that well and i think you're hitting it on the nose right like when we were talking about time shifting it was i would much rather have you spend five minutes with just me connected than for you to send me a note that says like hey good job on that thing amen oh my god yeah like just when you say that right there yes that's absolutely that's the place that I've reached in my life. I'm thinking about a client that I just talked to yesterday. I'm thinking, I don't know if like everybody's gotten to that space. Um, but yeah, that resonates for sure. The five minutes would mean a lot more than any sort of like, thank you card or condolences mm-hmm. card or, you know, like whatever you might put. Ugh. Okay. I love this, Rami. Remind us again, what are the three big things? Trust and encourage. Be prepared, mm-hmm. but flexible. And I don't know how to phrase this in this tense, but he was the great appreciator, which I think drove his optimism and his enthusiasm. Okay, so with that, we'll let those be the three tips. And we'd love for you to connect with us on Instagram at Workplace Hugs. And I would love to just get a sense that if people are Jim Henson fans, like were they as intimately familiar? I've learned a lot from this episode and what you think of these three tips. With that, I've been Shannon. And I've been Rami. And this has been Workplace Hugs. Workplace Hugs.